So I'm going to read to us from 1 John, and that's where uh, Pastor David is going to be preaching too. He's going to be preaching out of the first four verses of 1 John, but I'm going to call us to confession with verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's with that hope that we can come in confession. And so let's do that. Let's pray together this prayer of confession, which is in your bulletins or on the screen, and then take a, a moment of silent confession as well. Let's pray. Lord, we, oh, we don't have it. It's in your bulletin, sorry. Lord, we are like sheep and we get lost. We forget the needs of our neighbors and do not love you above all else. We need a savior to disrupt our sinful selves. Come, fill our lives, Jesus. Amen. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. And so the great hope that we have in Christ, I'll read to you from 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is such good news. This is the good news of Christmas that we get to share, hopefully, with our neighbors when they ask us about why Christmas is such a big deal for us. So thanks be to God for his gift to each one of us. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask Rob to come on up and read and pray for us before our sermon. Jen, you're so tall. Good morning, Merry Christmas. Give me one moment while I find our scripture. It's okay. This brings back all those contests when I was getting ready to join the church and you had to find the scripture very quickly. Yes, please. Thank you. I'll be reading to you from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, 
and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And we, we're going to have a prayer of preparation, right? Lord God, especially on this most holy of days, we ask that you would, you would come and give us spiritual ears to hear what David has to say to us this morning. Help us to experience truly it means for your son, for God, to have come and been born a human being. Amen. I don't know what Christmas means to you. I think we sometimes, <coughs> we sometimes give Christmas uh, the Christmas a bad rap in our culture in the sense that we sometimes say that our culture is only interested in the tinsel and the tree. They're only interested in the presents and the food. But I don't really think that's true, even of our secular culture in which we live. I think most people, if you ask them, what does Christmas mean to you? They're going to say that it's, it's more than that. Imagine waking up on Christmas Day, whether you have a faith or not, and all those trees are there, and all those presents are there, all that food is there, the tinsel is all there, but there's no one else around. It really wouldn't matter, would it? It would not be a joyful Christmas. You would not find yourself on that Christmas day, even surrounded with all of the trimmings, enjoying your Christmas experience. So even in our culture, there's a sense in which Christmas is supposed to be more than just the decorations, the shopping, the present, and all of that. But I, I still think on Christmas, we're committed as a culture to building a facade. You know, like those old buildings that uh, someone comes along and says, we want to rebuild this building, and they got everything but the outside. Sometimes it's just that single wall that's there, and they build something behind it. And it looks like it's an old building, but when you walk inside, it's completely new. It has new architecture. Now... One of the ways I think we do this superficial work is with letters. We write our Christmas letter. And they have meaning. They do. They, they give us an update on our friends. But they also tend to spin the last year. You know, my daughter got into Harvard. My son saved the world. Uh, we had a wonderful time traveling uh, through the Greek islands. And uh, we're now home. Uh, where all of our neighbours and friends welcome us with the best party we've ever had. Now those Christmas letters are a facade in a way. There's elements of truth in them, but they're somewhat superficial. They're throwaway letters. What we read today was the beginning of John's letter. And everything is not okay in John's family. He's writing a letter to a group of people whom have started to fracture. There's schism in the church. And in fact, if you go to the last line of the book, most books end with this really nice benediction, this really nice goodbye. This one ends with the words, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And if you read through the book, it goes, it's basically broken up with these sentences as, as we were talking today. If you claim this, if you claim that, 
if you claim this. And it's not a bunch of people who are denying their faith. It's a bunch of people who have taken their faith and they've put a facade on it. They're still part of the church, but what's inside is something that they've created and is new. And John is saying, no, no, that's not what true faith is. That's not the Christmas message. So his church at the time is his family is in a better feud. And John is asking this question for us, not whether Christmas is a facade, but whether our faith is a facade. And he writes this message, this book, to ask that question, to put them on the spot in a sense. But he begins in these first four verses by laying out the Christmas message, the grounding message of what the Christian faith really is. And, you know, my, um, my kids, if I was to tell them what the main point of this text is, their response would be low-key. Because it's really not uh, as wild or as extravagant or as boisterous or as noisy or as tensely or as neon-lighty as our Christmas experience is. The real message of Paul's, oh, John's passage here is that the Christmas message is sensible. That the Christmas message, the gospel, the story of Christ is sensible. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean sensible, although it certainly isn't uh, less than sensible. I don't mean sensible in the way that it makes sense. I mean sensible in the way that you can wrap your hands around it. Now, Paul, uh, John, sorry, John keeps us, as John has a habit of to do, to doing in his letters, he begins this very grounded letter with something incredibly profound. He begins it with the words in, one, in the first part of verse 1, that which was from the beginning, and he bookends that verse at the end of verse 1 with the words, word of life. And then he has in the middle of that something incredibly profound. So let's look at both of those bookends before we dive into the middle, because as we know at North Point, sandwiches are all about the filling. But we need to eat the bread first. All right, biblical sandwiches. So he's getting, or there's a thought that he might be getting all philosophical here. That which was from the beginning. Now, the Greek is actually profoundly simple here. And what's ironic is, if you ever get to learn Greek, if you ever go to seminary, one of the things I'll say about all of John's writing is that it's shallow enough to wade into with very little Greek, but plenty deep enough to drown in. So let's dig into this and try not to drown. What he's saying is, that which was from the beginning, whomever he is talking about here, he was there at the time of creation. He made the world out of nothing. He formed us from dust. He gave us this world for us to represent him in by thriving, by being creative. In fact, the whole sweep of history this Trinitarian God has been overseeing, has been orchestrating, has been made sense of. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, there is nothing low-key about this. These six words are incredibly profound. If you give thought to this, what John is saying is that whatever is being encountered here is not just been around, but has been the authority and the writer and the author of history. And he gets to 1C, and we get back to Hetty. This is the only two Hetty pieces in this text. 
word of life. So this that was from the beginning and which is the word of life. Now, what does he mean by the word of life? Well, the word of life is the extreme authority. If you can say a word and bring something into life, that's uh, probably the, that is in fact, it's the, it's the creation authority. It's the ability to breathe life into dust. And in fact, if you go to the uh, chapter eight of Matthew, you'll be familiar with the centurion who comes to Jesus and says to him, my servant is paralyzed and in pain. And Jesus says, well, do you want me to come to him and heal him? And he says, no, look, I'm a man who understands authority. I have people working under me and I have people above me. When they tell me to jump, I jump. When I tell them to jump, they jump. I get it. You are the word of life. You have authority. You speak the word, Jesus, and it will be done. So this is, in fact, uh, the description of Jesus that was that which was there from the beginning at the time of creation and spoke into existence creation. What does it say at the beginning? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be. And God said, his word has the authority over everything. So we then have this idea that he is the authority to give created life, restored life, redeemed life, and eternal life. So whatever we're talking about here is really the central piece of history and of all creation. Again, not at all low-key. But then John comes at us and makes two incredible statements in the middle of verse 1 and then again in verse 2a. Now we have, we have this, really, um, this really big theological terms we use like Emmanuel, God with us, or incarnation. But what we're really saying here is that this God, this God, this creator God, this authority God humbled himself and came into life as a baby boy. And this is really incredible. And not only that, <coughs> the life appeared, this Trinitarian creator came to the, this world and we sensed him. This isn't some sort of arbitrary concept that we learnt somewhere. We touched him. We heard him. We saw him. And the word looked there means we understood. We examined. And we took into heart what we saw. We touched. Now, I just want you to put your mind in. Imagine if Barack Obama or uh, Prince uh, one of the Prince, Prince Philip or, or some famous pop star was to walk into this building. <laughs> Who's dead, Prince Philip? Well, that would be even more amazing. <laughs> King, Charles. King Charles, thank you. But to walk in this building, you know they wouldn't walk in here without an entourage. They wouldn't, there's security. I remember good friends of ours uh, who were absolutely devoted to George Bush. And George Bush was going down the road and there were crowds on either side and he was surrounded by secret service and protected by him, he leant over and shook this person's hand for about two seconds. And she, I don't think she ever washed that hand again. Now, that encounter sort of speaks about these people, these pop stars, these kings, these presidents, 
who, who in some way have authority. Their words really do change something. But what it also tells us is that it's laden by fear. They don't have full authority. They don't, uh, they don't enter into this space uh, with a sense of control. They're, they're not in a place where everything for them is uh, within, their, within their grasp. But here we have the God from the beginning and the end of time, the creator God, the authority God, humbling himself to come as a baby with no control, no bodyguards, nothing. So that's the first profound thing that John is saying. The second thing that he is saying is, I was there, I was there and I saw it, right? I'm an apostle and I walked with, talked with, ate with, laughed with Jesus. You see these verses here are full of we statements. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And on and on it goes. We, we, we. And in that case, he's actually talking about an exclusive club, in a sense. He's talking about the apostles. Now, if you go to Matthew, sorry, to Acts, the first chapter of Acts, at the end of that chapter, when Judas has committed suicide and they only have 11 disciples and they're looking for another apostle and they have a list of requirements at the end of chapter where they say, let's find someone. They eventually appoint Matthias, but this is what the requirements are for that apostle role. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So John here is claiming that he's part of an exclusive club. He's an eyewitness, an ear witness, a touch witness to the historic entering into this world of that creator God, that one with all authority to speak things into existence, coming as a small baby boy. <coughs> now, what he's saying here is that the inside of that building has to be premised and watch the truth based on those who encountered him. Apostolic authority. When we use the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Apostolic Church. And this is what we're saying, that we take our authority. What's inside that building is the truth that was seen and expressed to us through the work of the apostles, those who were with Christ at that time. Now, in uh, some traditions, the idea of apostolic authority is uh, literally passed down by the laying on of hands. In the Orthodox tradition, for example, people who are bishops have to be able to present a lineage of the laying on of hands that, that began with one of the apostles. In the Reformed tradition, in the tradition that we are in, we see that apostolic authority coming through understanding the truths and the teachings. And in fact, when we go back to the Reformation, there's a term called ad fonts, or original, going back to the original fount. And so we find our apostolic authority by connecting to the word of God as it was expressed to us by the apostles. So 
Here we have then this very sensible message from John. The creator God who was there at the beginning will be there at the end and, and entered in was seen by these apostles. They saw who he was and he came with all that authority and was touched, eaten with, spoken to, spoke to those that were around him. So that's the Christmas message that John is conveying in, in this beginning of this letter, in his Christmas letter. But the passage itself does not actually, uh, is not actually built around any of those, any of the verbs we've talked about. The verb that is the, the center of this single sentence in Greek is the verb proclaimed. So there's something about this proclamation that we have proclaimed. So these apostles who proclaimed this truth, who passed it on, and you see that in verse 1 and verse 3, that they passed it on and, um, and they see that their Christmas joy, and I think this is really important to see, we write this to make our joy complete. So that also means that right now their joy is not complete. They're writing their joy, they're writing this letter, John is writing this letter with the hope that the outcome of this letter will bring his joy to completion. So what is, the, uh, what is this joy that he's talking about? So we read here, and we read this in verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard as apostles, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So the irony here, which I think we, we miss a lot, is notice the trajectory here. The fellowship with the Father and with, with God does not come first through the work of uh, some sort of crazy dream or things like that. Now, that does happen. It certainly happens in Islamic cultures. It happens. But the traditional way that it happens is the way that Paul is talking about it here. Community brings in and connects with other community. And that original orthodox apostolic community introduces people to Jesus Christ. And we need to, and the irony I think here is, and I, I think this is tragic in some ways, that those of us who are in the Reformed faith, we're the least likely to go out and evangelize, to proclaim. And yet we're the ones that when we understand and immerse ourselves in texts like this, we see that it is through that work of going out there that our joy is complete. So we notice the order of the fellowship here. It is we who are connected to the apostolic truth through the uh, making connection with other people out there, introduce them to having fellowship with Christ. And in fact, this is not a surprise because what we find here is actually affirmed by sociologists. If you ask or if you read anything like from Rodney Stark, a sociologist who works at Georgetown, one of his seminal works is How Does Faith Spread? And that's exactly what he says. And now we're not minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit here. What we're recognizing is the normal and traditional way that the Holy Spirit works. Now, we're not apostles, you might say. So what's our role in proclamation? Well, we talked about the word of life, the word of life. And of course, those of us, when we talk about going back to the original sources, we're talking here about going back to the works and the writings 
of Scripture, the, the, the words of God that were put. And so when we encounter Scripture in the Word, when we read the Bible, with the Holy Spirit working within us, we are truly encountering God. So our fellowship with God then happens through the Word of Life, through Spirit and Bible, reading the Bible and praying as a relational activity. And our joy too is made complete when we proclaim, when we go and intentionally make community, when we intentionally uh, introduce God to other people. We allow the Holy Spirit to work through us through that way. So we connect to our apostolic tradition that way. And it's not really a surprise, I don't think, that this brings joy. You see, <coughs> when we, we see that our joy, we write this to make our joy complete. Now, if you were Lionel Messi and Argentina and Argentina would won the World Cup as they did, I imagine in that moment your joy was complete. You really didn't care how I felt, you know, what I was doing, or coughing or spluttering or whatever I was doing. Your joy for that moment was complete. And Paul is saying that we're never going to have that the fullness of joy like Lionel Messi had in that split second, in that moment, until we see all those who are out there who should be in here. Until we see the proclamation bear fruit because we welcome into fellowship and introduced other people to Jesus Christ. And that's actually the Christmas message that Jesus, that, that John is writing to us. See, the mark of a Christian is one who loves God and loves others. And so our joy would be complete if we look out there and we, gr we grieve because they are not in here. If we love and we see people who are lost, we grieve. And that's right to grieve. And it should motivate us, this life of spirit and Bible, this relational encounter with God, this fellowship with God, if it's transformative to us, we will not be surprised if, like John, we want to make our joy complete. We want to connect with them. We want to bring that apostolic encounter with Christ to those that are out there. So there's a challenge here for us. Is our faith grounded in John's gospel message or is it just a facade? Does it matter that that which, which was from the beginning, that the word of life broke into this world Or is our faith just the facade? If it matters, we will go out and proclaim it. Not because we feel some sort of obligation, not because, but because our hearts have been transformed by that fellowship itself. And like John, our joy will only be complete when those who haven't heard the message are brought into the fold. I encourage you this Christmas to take the Christmas message, not just home, to your neighbours, to your workplaces, to your friendships, to everywhere that God has put you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas letter from John that is certainly not superficial and not a throwaway letter, not unless our faith is really just a facade. So, Father, we do pray that the core of who we are is grounded on your apostolic tradition, the church that you set up, the, the faith 
that you established. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and your word, which enable us to continue to encounter you. And we pray, Father, that you would transform us to being those who live lives by loving you and loving others. We ask this Christmas message to be a message for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.